Okay, let's do it. So, um, Wharton Current episode, I guess this now is uh, our second episode. Uh, we have uh, Yonta Boysen with us. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I think I fucked it up. But, uh, uh, <laughs> and we're, uh, we're here to talk about uh, um, carbon capture. So, we have, uh, I have with me uh, uh, co-host Hamza and Haley. Uh, we're ganging up on Yonta today, like uh, 3v1. I hope you're ready for this. Oh, I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'll let you uh, introduce yourself, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so uh, again, Yonta Boysen. I am a first year here at Wharton, uh, also doing the, the Lauder dual degree, uh, <coughs> focusing on, on Africa. Um, I was doing consulting for banks before I came, but I'm now looking to, to pivot into a direct air capture space, um, negative emissions more broadly, and we can talk more about the distinction later um, and why that is so. Uh, and yeah, I'm excited to be here, excited to talk more about this. It's a very, very exciting topic and I think very topical in general, <laughs> given the, the new funds that are coming out and, and all the big, big movements around uh, yeah. climate. Yeah. And Haley brought the cookies too, so like we're, we're all set to go. Yeah. All right. Um, do you do you want me to just go into into why why yeah so like so capture? let's bring back on like our conversation that we had just earlier like uh, the, the I think the why carbon capture is important. Let's start with that. Like the uh, what are you know the emissions objective and how this will impact the our need for carbon capture. And I think let's start with the uh, let's start there for now. Yeah. The. The place I started, and I think the, the place most people um, who are thinking about the space start, is looking at what, what politicians uh, and scientists are kind of talking about agreeing to in terms of our targets long term. And, and like, so where are we headed and where do we want to be? And then work back from that to get to how do we actually get there. Uh, where we're headed to seems like current trajectory around four degrees of warming by 2100. Uh, where we want to be. Uh, is somewhere between two degrees to one and a half degrees. The, the um, IPCC reports, the International Panel on Climate Change a report on one and a half degree warning from, from 2018 was a big step that helped uh, governments, I think, realize the value of the difference between one and a half and two degrees. Um, I actually spoke to the, the vice chair of the International Panel on Climate Change in January, and she told me that she's since the report hearing from a lot of people uh, in governments, uh, that they are they're actively working towards one and a half degrees and over two, which wasn't the case before. So it seems like the, the research is helping, and and people are are slowly shifting towards that target. Um, and so if we if we have this target in mind of one and a half degrees, there are only so many ways we can get there, right? So if if the current trajectory is four degrees, uh, we know we have to stop emitting as much as we are. The first question is, can we stop emitting enough to to stay under one and a half degrees of warming? Uh, the answer to that is no. And there's not really not really a big debate about that anymore. For one and a half degrees, that, that special report by the IPCC stated that there are uh, no scenarios that, that allow us to stay with one and a half degrees. Now, once you accept that, the only alternative is negative emission technologies. 
And that includes a lot of biological solutions like trees, which are considered technologies in the space. But so trees, uh, soil carbon sequestration, biochar, and then more technical things like direct air capture, uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, um, and some, some other things like uh, concrete concrete storage. So that is kind of the, the scope and why you need negative emissions. Um, there's a lot of debate on how much negative emissions is required, but for the one and a half degree target, there's no more debate on whether they're required. So basically, the bottom line is, you know, there's two ways of attack on climate change. One of them could be, hey, can I focus on very commercial technologies like renewable power? But basically, we've come to the conclusion that that simply is not going to be enough. And we need to start. And you need to both. both. Exactly. Because, I mean, one of the things you were telling us is one of the challenges with the director capture technologies is that traditionally it takes a lot of power to actually to do that. And so you do need to attack it. So you need to burn the candle on both ends, so to speak. Is that is that fair? Yeah. And and so so the the phrasing, it's (laughs) mitigation uh, versus removal is kind of the the way that that that's termed. and everyone agrees mitigation is the primary priority for everybody right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, mitigation is cheaper, probably at an order of magnitude than removal. And so every every ton of carbon dioxide we can prevent from being released into the air is better than, well, is is cheaper than every ton we, we then have to remove from the air. So it right. makes sense to focus on that. There are other arguments in terms of how you how you stagger these time-wise, mitigation versus removal, um, that until we have gotten to a point where our emissions are close to zero and we kind of have this like base that is hard to remove um, left, it doesn't even make sense to start removal because their dollars are spent better in mitigation. And so the timeline there, a lot of people are talking about is like 2050 maybe, will be close to zero, maybe 2070, depending on how things go. Um, the only issue with that is if we wait to develop these technologies until we're close to zero emissions based on mitigation, then they won't exist at a reasonable cost or a reasonable scale for us to actually be able to leverage them. The other issue is you have to have a lot of faith even in mitigation for you to think that we can get to close to zero in 2050 or 2070. And if that isn't the case, then there will be this aha moment maybe in 2030 where we say, all the all the projections we've made over the last 20 years are way off. We're closer to six degrees warming, actually, if we don't start removing carbon dioxide. And now we need this technology, but people have... I mean, even on. now, I think the you know the projections for 2050 or 2060, like, we're going to be, like, at like, four degrees? Like, or, like this is pretty far. We're pretty far from the two to one and a half, right? Yeah, it, de- it depends who you ask. I think the, right now, a lot of people tell you four by 2100. I think for 2050, that's that would be pretty high. Um but the, the um, UNEP released a report in 2019 uh, that very clearly stated uh, there is no signs of uh, greenhouse gas emissions peaking in the next few years. And so every single model that, that hit the two to even one and a half degrees peaks in around 2020 and then decreases from there. And, and it's just been shown that that's not going to happen. And it's unreasonable for us to make any policy decisions or commercial decisions based on a peak in 2020. So we definitely need it. Let's talk about costs. We're at the business school here. Yeah. So how much does it cost right now to pull carbon out of the air? What price do we need it to be at for it to have mass adoption? And what type of regulatory changes do you want to see to be able to make that happen? So in terms of current cost, uh, you you kind of have to trust the people that are working in the space right now. So uh, the published cost, Climeworks is one of the main players uh, who's based out of Switzerland. Uh, their 
openly saying it costs them $600 per ton. They're also saying they can get it down to two to 300 in the near future, whatever that means. My guess is five to 10 years and that their target is $100 per ton. Um, but again, that's that's all assuming that, that they're going to be right in their projections. There are other companies uh, like Carbon Engineering who they've released uh, a paper uh, outlining how they can get to $94 per ton even in a, in a one megaton plant. So one megaton uh, removal per year. Um, that assumes a couple of things. Their range is 94 to 250. Um, and then the, the third major player, uh, Global Thermostat, is saying that they are already able to do it at close to $120. Um, so I think that's the range is somewhere in there. Um, most people that talk about negative emissions in general, but specifically about direct air capture, I think target the $100 mark as being like a threshold at which point it becomes even reasonable to discuss doing it for sequestration. There are, there are other uses where it may be profitable for enhanced oil recovery or other, other <clears throat> utilization options, which is still all mitigation and not really removal. And for the most part. To put those costs into context, like the U.S. is emitting like what, like 5 billion tons of CO2 every year. So that um, would, like we're talking about a significant cost to the economy here. Yeah, the U.S. would probably be a bit more. So if, if, if it's 40, 40 gigatons per year, uh, China's probably 30% of that. The U.S. maybe 15% of that. Um, so maybe like eight, um, <coughs> to six, yeah. Yeah, so th whether it's eight or it's five, like it's still yeah. like we're talking about like a hundred dollars a ton is even like you know, uh, like it's it's a massively expensive thing to do. Right? Yeah, and so in terms of the projections of how much you need, um, the there are a lot of scenarios again on on how much removal is required for us to hit the scenarios that we're trying to get to. Uh, the mean scenario I've seen is somewhere around six gigatons in twenty fifty. Um, but I've seen things from 20 gigatons of 2050 to zero gigatons of 2050, depending on who you ask. Um, but I think the six seems reasonable uh, based on what I've seen. If you convert that into $100 per ton, that's a $600 billion a year industry, um, which would be massive and one of the biggest industries in the world. It would also mean, however, that you essentially have to double electricity supply, current like world electricity supply, mm -hmm. um, assuming today's technologies, which again, in 30 years, we will have different efficiencies on direct air capture. And so I don't actually think they'll be required. And this is one of the main criticisms. And I think it came up in, in the question as well around electricity supply. Um, and so, so that is something to keep in mind. Uh, it will require investment. It also then incurs other CO2 costs of developing even uh, the infrastructure to, to be able to do that. Um, and then in terms of policy, I think that was your, your last party question. Um, the the main the main drivers of change are going to be some kind of uh, internalization of the cost of polluting the atmosphere. And so those externalities are currently just covered by society. Um, and, and there are ways to do that either through a direct carbon tax, um, through emission trading schemes. I think there's, there's a lot of things people are, are, are trying. Emission trading schemes seem to be winning overall in terms of what governments actually implement. I think there's this desire to let market forces govern the price of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. There's pros and cons to that. There's also debates on a lot of the carbon taxes or, or emission trading scheme prices are kind of ramping up over time. Um, and there are arguments that they should actually start high and ramp down over time because that is the, the actual true reflection of the value or the, the cost that they're incurring. So 
a lot of debates about that. Um, there, twenty percent of global emissions are covered by an emission trading scheme. China actually entered this year um, in, into that realm. So you see, you see a lot of countries adopting this. The range of prices, probably from like a dollar to one hundred twenty-seven dollars, but more than fifty percent are under ten dollars per ton currently traded. Um, but but I think those are the things that that will help get um, get us closer to somewhere where sequestration so putting the carbon dioxide back underground is profitable mm-hmm. um, and there are there are many many countries that have targets in place that grow those prices over time interesting now Jonte, so in your view what's what's the biggest thing holding us back is it just the fact that the technology on direct air is not there or is this is the bottleneck more on the power generation side where we simply cannot generate power at a low enough cost or enough power really to be able to make this feasible at this stage so I think there's a, there's a couple of historical <laughs> barriers for direct air capture. Uh, the first one is the moral hazard argument. And so a lot of people are arguing that by enabling us to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, uh, we are disincentivizing people from mitigating their emissions. And so that is the first debate. And this is tricky because this is a debate that you have within environmentalists or w- within people trying to fight climate change, mm-hmm. where there are strong opinions on either side um, and it, it becomes a very difficult conversation because obviously you, you, you don't know the answer. You don't know whether this is a good idea or not before having tried it. Um, so I think that is one of the big questions. The only, the only thing to that is people are coming around slowly. So even people who were against it before are now at least allowing for the discussion to happen. Uh, they may not be for it, but I think there is a growing acceptance of what would it look like, right? So let's just discuss if we had to have negative emissions or even direct air capture, what would it look like? Um, then cost, like you said, is a big one, but there are new players in the space now who are saying they can do it for under $100 per ton. Mm-hmm. And so we'll see once they commercialize if they can actually maintain that. That's in the lab, obviously, um, maybe different conditions. Um, but but so there, I think there are promising, promising solutions out there. Um, and then... Lastly, renewable electricity and, and energy or heat sources are, are kind of the, the other piece that historically have been an issue. But with renewable energy, electricity costs coming down, mm-hmm. um, it is helping to make this a profitable business now yeah. or at least something that is worth discussing uh, because previously it was so high, so so uh, energy intensive and cost intensive, it wouldn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. I think what I what I really like is I think the renewable energy industry can almost be like a, a case study on this. I mean, the scale at which we've commercialized and brought down renewable energy technology, kind of in the world over the last 20, 30 years, has been nothing short of impressive. And I mean, I think it sounds like what you're saying is that's a level of resources that we need to mobilize against direct. Era, to make sure that when we get to the stage when we are actually net zero and we need to start pulling back, that the technology and the costs have sort of caught up. I think the scary thing is that although renewables was a, an interesting case study, this has to be much faster and more invested than a renewable energy for us to actually stay within one and a half degrees. Yeah. For us to stay within three degrees, maybe not. <laughs> within one and a half degrees, uh, I... That's a, that's a scary thought, that we need to do it faster than what we did on the renewable energy front, which, yeah. which again, I think was, to repeat, was nothing short of impressive. Yeah, no, and, and that's yeah. what I think a lot of people are, are shying away from now, is, is this even feasible? Should we be pumping this much money, investing in an industry that will maybe get us where we need to go versus pumping all this money mitigation that can help us now? And, and mm-hmm. for example, continuing investment in renewable energy to make that cheaper than to invest in direct air capture. Yeah. So I'm curious, what 
what is so expensive about direct air capture? Is there a certain component in the technology that is just driving up costs or where is the innovation needed? So there's a, there's a, a couple of, of primary sources of cost. Um, the, it, it depends a bit on the process. So there is, well, there's now a wider range of, of uh, processes. The two main ones that the, the three big players are using are, are solvent-based solutions and sorbent-based solutions. Um, so one is a, a liquid that, uh, that is called the solvent that takes up the, the carbon dioxide and reacts with it, um, that then when heated uh, is at, to very high temperatures, um, is able to release that into a um, relatively pure form which you can then use to either store or utilization, uh, utilize for other things. Um, and so, so there, uh, the expensive, the, the liquid can be reused. The expensive piece is, is A, the, the electricity, uh, B, the, uh, there's, a, there's a hard component over which the solution runs that has to be designed in a way for the, the liquid to have high surface area and allow for the air to flow through and so on. And so those structures can be hard to, um, hard to develop. And, and then it's just, it's, it's a it's a it's a large uh, machine, so they're they're always moving pieces that are expensive. You have engineers and so on. So I think that's just part of the the any capital intensive project like that would have those costs. The other solutions are the sorbent based solutions, um, which are a little bit more expensive today. Still are um, it's a it's like a porous material with really high surface area that absorbs the the carbon dioxide, uh, and the creation of that material itself is very expensive. And so uh, there you have. Uh, yeah, difficulty on the material science side of, of developing these in, in the scale large enough for air that flows through to provide, if you wanted to, a, a megaton per year, uh, it's, it's, no one has really developed these, um, these materials in that scale. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, that gives, gives some background into how it actually works, uh, which we, we haven't really talked about, of what is direct air capture. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask. Um, <laughs> and, and so at, a, at a highest <laughs> level, it is... It is a process of uh, absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, uh, either through solvent or sorbent, uh, that allows you to then capture the, the carbon dioxide um, and if you want to, store it underground. So that's what the, the sequestration is, um, is putting it back into the geological reservoirs where the oil came from originally, which are proven to be able to hold these types of liquids or, or gases uh, over millions of years, which they did with the oil, um, and and have been shown even since oil companies have been doing this for fifty years, uh, have been shown to to be uh, very secure storage places for these um, yeah, for carbon dioxide, uh, and so that is that is the theory: is you you suck it out of the air essentially, put it underground, and leave it there. The only issue is there are few people that will pay you to do that, and so how do you actually make that problem? And, and maybe that's a dumb question, but how do you actually suck it out of the air? Like, is it like a big vacuum cleaner that you can... So there are different solutions to that as well. There are people who have developed solutions now that don't require any kind of suction, uh, that just kind of fold up in the wind, essentially, and absorb uh, the, the carbon dioxide. A lot of them do require for the air to be uh, sucked through so that you actually get enough flow to get the... Um, the air to interact with the solvent or the sorbent. And so that's one of the, the sources of electricity costs is just you have to actually get this air to go through the filter that you... And how would you how would you deploy that at, at scale? Like it feels like, um, I mean, it feels like there's there's so much space that you need to cover. Uh, how How is that technology scalable? 
So you can stack it, which is the first thing, which is good versus other technologies like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is kind of planting uh, a bunch of either <coughs> trees or other crops, um, burning those, capturing the carbon dioxide, putting them underground and using electricity for something. That is something that is harder to do vertically. For things like direct air capture, you can kind of build these plants in a, in a more vertical fashion. Um, and, and that's what people are doing. And so I mentioned the, the one megaton plant that Carbon Engineering is, is uh, trying to build in the, in the Permian Basin, actually, actually with an oil company for enhanced oil recovery, which is putting the, oil under, the uh, CO2 underground to extract more oil. Um, that, that is um, a very, yeah, like it's kind of like a rectangular, high, thin building um, with a lot of fans that, that is then just <laughs> capturing the, the carbon dioxide out of the air. Interesting. And just to put that in perspective, that's a plant that has the ability to do one megaton per year when it's fully active? Or? Yeah, okay. that's the goal. Gotcha. Uh, and so this is one of the, one of the again, within direct air capture is already uh, a debated industry. Within that, enhanced oil recovery is debated again um, between supporters of direct air capture uh, because it allows oil companies to extract more oil. There are ways to do it that has net negative emissions, even if you include the considerations for how much oil is burned um, after it's extracted. Uh, the, the main argument against it from uh, some scientists is that it makes new oil fields profitable in regions that is hard to get carbon dioxide. And so if you expand the resource base for oil companies to profitably extract oil, you're lowering prices and hurting any mitigation, mitigation initiatives that are trying to be cost competitive over time. Uh, and so you're actually helping the oil companies become more profitable and extract more oil. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting points of that is that actually the, the market for carbon dioxide that's used to enhance oil recovery is... Um, about 80 million tons a year, and 50 million of those tons are um, sourced naturally, yeah. meaning they're actually creating more carbon to be used for enhanced oil recovery when that can be created anthropogenically. Yeah. It means using it from natural gas or whatever that may be. So, like you were talking about, if we had some type of regulatory change in which there was a carbon tax, these oil and gas companies could not only get paid to pull oil out of the ground, but they could get paid to be storing this carbon that they're recycling from another process. It just seems like common sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and <laughs> even, even there's this, uh, similar uh, approaches to if you're already drilling for an uh, oil reservoir, there are probably layers between that don't have oil that could hold carbon dioxide that on the way down, it's a new revenue source for oil companies to just store some carbon dioxide on the way down mm -hmm. and then uh, pump up the, uh, the oil where, where the oil is and pump carbon dioxide into that chamber as well. And so uh, having, like increasing the number of revenue streams for oil companies, which is again, then a question of how do you want to It's also decreasing cost of that, of that reservoir. Exactly, so you're, you're, you're sharing the capital costs across yeah. multiple projects and so on. Um, I think there's, there will have to be a debate around what is, uh, how much does the government want to subsidize oil production in general? But mm -hmm. current oil subsidies are already in the trillions of dollars across the globe today. Yeah. So I think that is a discussion <laughs> that we've lost previously and, and we yeah. may want to reopen in general. Well, I think, uh, Yanti, like, this was uh, super informative. Like, I think we want to keep those short so mm -hmm. we, can, we can wrap it up maybe here. Uh, if there's, like, any parting thoughts that anyone uh, wants to share 
Um, I think the only thing we haven't touched much on, uh, which I'll try to keep short, is around other negative emission technologies. Uh, why don't we just plant trees? Why don't we do any of the other options for, for taking carbon dioxide out of the air? Uh, and I think the shortest answer is we should. We should do all those things. Um, but the, there, there won't be a single solution, and especially on the natural side, there won't be a single solution, for example, with trees. Uh, if you cover the entire Sahara with trees watered through desalination from the Atlantic, you would change the albedo of the Earth, which means the reflectivity, meaning that you actually heat up the Earth because there's a darker surface covering uh, northern Africa, and so the, the Earth warms up. And so there's all these, these things that you don't think about when at the scale that's required, you, you evaluate individual solutions, they all fall short in some way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the, the trickiest conversation to have is what about all these other options? And I think the, the easy answer is you need them all, but they don't all work at scale and they, they're not a single solution. Gotcha. All right, well, thanks so much for coming. Like, I think uh, this was super interesting. Very helpful. Very yeah. helpful, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully everyone's learned a bit more about uh, direct air capture. Yeah, no, <laughs> thanks a lot for this. Thanks, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right.